Welcome to No Week Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, coaches, parents of athletes, or any active person looking to improve their fitness or athletic ability. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I am your host, Patrick Wood, and I have Grace Lennox on helping out co-hosting today. Our interview today is Seb Pearson, who is a strength and conditioning coach at Eastern Illinois University and also a former professional rugby player. So if you just want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Seb, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. Um, so like you said, my name is Seb Pearson. I'm a graduate assistant strength conditioning coach at Eastern Illinois University, uh, originally from Canada, formerly a rugby player, but now retired from that and focusing on my career as a strength coach. Okay. And then, so uh, you want to expand a little bit more on, you kind of played at a high level with rugby and you've been in the strength and conditioning field for a little bit. So what kind of got you involved in that? And um, did it have anything to do with rugby and injuries and anything like that? Yeah. So uh, I guess like the biggest reason that I got into it was when I was like 17, I got uh, selected to my first like junior national team. And at that point, like my parents were like, okay, like you should take this seriously. We should get you like someone to work with. And like a friend of a friend knew a guy who was a strength coach at the town where I was growing up. So when I was 17, I started working with a strength coach. Um, always really enjoyed it. And it was always, a, it was a big help, you know, for the whole time I was going through it. And as I went through and like got older, I ended up playing um, some professional rugby in the UK. And when you get there, there's, Cause like it's such a low percentage of people that actually could make like a career out of it that lasts longer than like the three or four years or whatever it is to get your pension. Mm-hmm. Um, they're always sort of like asking you like, what do you want to do after? Like, what are your plans? Are you going to go to school? Are you going to do a trade? Like all those different things. And like, while I was over there, I always really enjoyed the training and I always had really good strength coaches that were like really good guys. Cause like being from a different country, I didn't really know a lot of people. They're always open to like letting me come to the gym if I was bored or like hanging out and talking. And I sort of just had like a light bulb moment when I was over there playing. I was like, you know what? Like, this is what I want to do for sure when I'm done. Cause I knew I always wanted to be involved with sports. I just didn't know in what capacity. So once I had those experiences, with those strength coaches over in the UK, it was like, yeah, like I'm definitely going to do this. And that was really good because it gave me like a focus and a direction for when I actually did go back to school. Cause I went right from high school to living in the UK. I had no intention of going to university hated it hated school but knowing like okay like i spent some time i figured out what i want to do with my life now i can go to university with like an actual focus and i think that actually helped me get all the way through it so that was like that was a big thing that led me into getting uh, into strength conditioning did you um previously when you were playing rugby did you ever play when you weren't doing any strength and conditioning or was you, you always doing some type of um strength training or injury prevention or something yeah, like like I said, like that that's all on my parents. Like they were they were athletes themselves and they sort of realized yeah. like, okay, like Seb, like if you're serious about this and you actually wanna this is what you wanna do, like you need to be doing this. Cause like they understood the physical nature of the sport that I was playing. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're playing at an international yeah. level, like they're like, You gotta do this, so like you gotta put some armor on, you gotta take care of yourself, you know, you gotta yeah. you gotta think long term. So yeah, like there's obviously points in time where like I wasn't doing as much strength and conditioning like there was obviously times where you get sick of it and you take a break but yeah like from the time that i was 17 years old i was more or less always working with a strength coach or with someone doing some sort of yeah like athletic performance or injury prevention type work yeah see that's something that like 
over in the States, strength and conditioning is like a lot bigger than it is over in Australia. So like we are having trouble um, like trying to work with athletes and they just don't take strength and conditioning as seriously over here. So I was just wondering like in Canada, like whether strength and conditioning is kind of as big as it is in the States or Yeah, because I guess so. you, got, you have experience with that and UK. So like can you yeah. elaborate a little bit more on how it is comparably? And you have States experience, so. Yeah, it's like you, like all the different experiences that I've had, like like – like obviously like you said like united states like strength conditioning is like it's ingrained in the culture right like it's Mm. so much part of like american football right that it's like it's like you play football and you lift weights it's like the thing you do it's it's part of it and like they're sort of like american strength conditioning has like gotten really really good but also gotten like really really good at like getting people really strong that's what like they're really known for is like Mm -hmm. you know like you, you come to like a football team in the states and like a 500 pound back squat is like it's, it's whatever but if you're playing international rugby like someone's squatting 500 pounds like that's <laughs> incredible right and it's just like what the different cultures put different emphasis on mm-hmm. and like like with the australian model so much of it is about like player management and player load and player tracking that's what the australian model is great with and then like yeah the canadian model is kind of like somewhere in between like that australian and that american model of like getting really strong but also like heavily influenced by science and then the uk system is very similar to canada in that sense where it's very heavily influenced by science and i think it's also like it's the cultures of the countries that comes out in that strength and conditioning culture as well yeah yeah probably like along with the sports as well what do you have exactly do you have a preference or like what kind of one do you follow in general with all of those different philosophies I think that striking a balance is really important. I like I like to personally feel that like everything that I do is based in exercise science, sports science, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But I also like see huge value in just like working really, really hard and getting really, really strong. I find that sometimes people they try and strive too hard for the optimal and they end up going the other way where people aren't actually even really doing enough work. So like I think personally I like to try to find that balance between sports science and just straight up traditional strength and conditioning. So yeah. that's, that's what I'm sort of striving for within my own career and my own athletes and stuff because I see the value in it for everyone. Yeah, I think that's uh, like massive too just with a shift. Now it's kind of kind of going both ways before it was a lot of just pounding and like this is you're going to you're going to get strong in this and then it's kind of going back towards injury prevention like you're saying finding that in between line and then the also in between line is a lot of people are a lot more evidence based research stuff now compared to clinically what actually works and that's what's trying to find the line between those as well because that's what this school over here is showing us too of how much you know like clinical research and you know papers people get into but then it's there's also the whole aspect of your actual experience in the gym that's you know yeah absolutely and like i think what people are starting starting to realize now is like certainly within the American model, it was always just like, just get stronger, get stronger, get stronger. And like, then like you're saying, like you, people are delving into the research and what they're realizing is, is that like, you know, like someone hits like 1.7 times body weight in the back squat. And then like, after that, the increases to their performance by increasing their back squat are actually negligible. It's, it's almost not worthwhile once you hit a certain point of strength. And sometimes like people get so carried away and like I'm a strength coach, I'm a weightlifting coach, but like at the end of the day, that's not what your athletes do. Right. So if you've, if you've tapped out on something, right, you need to then move on to something else instead of just sticking with this one thing, like getting stronger is hugely important, right? It's external force. Our inability to handle external force is what gets us injured, 
right? Yeah. But after a certain point, you're kind of just wasting time if all you're doing is hammering away on strength. So like you kind of do have to be up on your research and realize that like, okay, like, yeah, like this athlete, like they, they can squat enough weight. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We can, we, we maintain that strength and we move on to something else to help them be a better athlete so they can play better on the field and staying up on your research is huge for something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the athletes isn't to how much weight they can lift. It's how good they can be at their sport. And that's kind of what mm -hmm. the difference is. Like, I feel like that's a misconception too with strength and conditioning in general is a lot of people just think it's like lifting weights and getting big and strong and all that when there's so much more to it. So yeah, there absolutely is. Sorry, you go Sorry, ahead. go ahead. I was just saying like no. that's absolutely the case because like for so long, that's what it was. It was like you had a, a strength coach that was like a former power lifter, right? Yeah. And that's all they knew, right? Mm -hmm. It was like bench, dead, squat, right? And that's like, we're going to do this with sports, right? And then like, so that's where those like those misconceptions, like they come from valid places, right? Because that is what things were like for a really long time. But then obviously mm -hmm. – the exercise science part of the field started to develop and people started to evolve. So like, and I think it's starting to come around where like, like I said, like the culture of strength conditioning is ingrained in American football and it's starting to become a thing in basketball and it's starting to become a thing in soccer mm -hmm. and golf and all these things. And all these sort of like misconceptions and urban legends about strength conditioning are slowly starting to go away as people are realizing that strength coaches are starting to become a lot more educated and well-read and researched. Yeah. And those things that people thought were true are not necessarily the case anymore, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, Seb, you did a your research project uh, last year on was something like vertical jump predictor of fatigue, right? So like, and then you based that off of um, well, the, their performance on how you were training them during the day with strength conditioning. Is that kind of, you just talk a bit about, about that because I feel like that's kind of on the same lines of finding that balance and not you know, overtraining them if they feel like they're not going to. Perform. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like, yeah, so my research was I did it with the women's soccer team at EIU and they're in a unique situation where like they show up on campus and they're in season, like they start like right away. First week of class, right. they have a game, right? And obviously the most important thing that they do is play their sport, right? So my, I felt that my job was most important was to make sure that they were performing at the highest level possible and not that anything that I was doing was going to take away from what they were doing on the field, right? Yeah. Because you have all these schools at varying levels within the NCAA, right? Some have huge amounts of money and they can provide food and monitoring and heart rates and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like every school is falling under the same rules of the NCAA. So like the women's soccer team at EIU practices and plays just as much as the soccer team at USC or Auburn. But right. EIU are not provided with the same sort of measures to, to maintain themselves, right? So I felt that there was a need to, to find some sort of way that was simple that allowed me to keep the girls performing optimally while they were on the field. And this easiest one for me was just a consistent vertical jump and then it creating like a sort of a threshold in a decrease of performance to modify training for them. So yeah. when I did that research, I used 10% decrease in vertical jump. And what I found was that was actually probably not sensitive enough. There probably should have been more girls that were had an altered training program for that day. Okay. But it, it was effective in, in the end because we actually made it through that entire season without a single soft tissue injury. Yeah, and cool. the team went from finishing last in conference to finishing third last year. So not to say that's not like everything to do. That's not like strength conditioning didn't do all of that. But with a small squad, we were able to have everybody available for every single game of every year, you know, which was, right. which was huge. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. 
So do you have um, a certain style then of training you do? Because there's, I mean, there's a lot of different styles out there, linear, conjugate, other styles. Do you have one you prefer? Yeah. Um, my, like, my, I feel like my style is constantly in flux. Yeah. And I think it's mm. a big, it's, it's, it's hugely dictated by, again, like, how much time do I have? Like, again, like going back to women's soccer, like, they show up on campus and they're in season. Mm. Right. So with them, like what I do is like a more concurrent style, like or similar, like a conjugate style, but without sort of like separating like the upper and lower power and the upper and lower strength. Mm -hmm. So with them, like early in the week, we get our total body strength done and then they come and lift on a Thursday before their Friday game. And it's just it's a power circuit. So it's like total body strength, total body power, which is similar to like a conjugate system, but just putting it all together, strength and power. But also at the same time, like if I were to have time, like the season's over and like we have a whole bunch of time, like, I don't know, say like, yeah, like with soccer, like the season's over before first semester is ended at that point, then I can do more of like a, not necessarily like a linear, but like a block periodization or something yeah. like that. And I could spend a little, if I, if I felt like I needed to, I could spend a little bit more time getting them stronger because I have that time. But typically within the NCAA and the way seasons are and the amount that teams practice, you don't really have that those consecutive weeks to dedicate to like enhancing one thing. So I really believe that especially for athletes, like a concurrent model is the best one. I think Mm -hmm. you should be trying to enhance all those qualities um, at all times. And like that sort of was like heavily influenced by my own experience when I was coached where I never did like upper lower splits. Every, every workout Mm -hmm. I always did was always full body. It always covered everything. Um, and then I read a book by Joe Ken called uh, the Strength Coach Strength Coach's Playbook. This is the tier system. So my mm. training, like when mm. I work with my athletes, is like heavily influenced by that book as well. Because a like it confirmed like some of the bias that I had myself when I from when I was training and how I felt things should be done. Yeah. But it gave me a, it gives you a framework to be to work within it because you can it sets yourself up so that you can have like. A power, a power tier, a strength tier, and then sort of like a repeated effort tier, all within a single workout. And then the model undulates so that you're hitting total body, lower body, and upper body in each one of those tiers at different times during the week. So it allows you to train all aspects of the body, and then at all different like speeds within the force velocity curve as well. Yeah. So that's. So do you do you believe that um, in the like because you you have a preference of the more conjugate or type style that in the linear you do diminish if you're just focusing on one or do you think it just depends? Well, like by nature of like a linear periodization, right? It's like you spend a bunch of time doing one thing, and then you do the next thing, and then you do the next thing, yeah. and then that that training effect that you trained for those residuals to only last a certain amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. Like max strength will last like the longest amount of time. You basically have five, your max strength will hold up for about five weeks, right? Power is less. I think it's like two or three weeks. And then like absolute speed is like one week, right? So that's, that's sort of like the fault with, um, using like a linear periodization within like a collegiate system, because you're really having to peak multiple, multiple times, Mm. which is where like, like a block periodization, which is like similar to like a linear periodization, but like you can have multiple peaks within the year that typically yeah. like works better. If you have that kind of thing, it works better for like, like a block periodization works really well for like swimming or like track and field or something like that. When like, you know that you have like 
these specific meets that the coach wants yeah. them to perform really, really well at. Like, for example, with EIU swim, it's it's House of Champs and then it's Conference. Like, you have two mm-hmm. big peaks every year, which lets, like, a linear sort of block-style periodization work really, really well, right? Yeah. But, like, with a field sport, it's like we've got, like, two games a week. Sometimes, like, yeah. in basketball, the schedule is all over the place. So that's when, like, a more concurrent style can actually allow you to be more flexible and sort of, like, fit things in where you need it. It's like, okay, like, we got to get a lift in this week, but we got, like three games well we're obviously not going to do like you know a high volume session but let's do like a super low volume super high intensity either strength or power session right and just fit that in where you can so that that's why i like that just because of like the chaotic nature of like ncaa scheduling yeah that makes sense was there anything you'd say that's really changed in your philosophy of coaching throughout your years or like one of the biggest changes you've made i think the biggest change is made and it's certainly come since um I've been here at EIU is that like I'm more so like inclined to like trust the intuition of the athlete and use like a method of training where like I I train them off like a rate of perceived exertion rather than a percentage. Mm -hmm. Like the guy that I worked for before I came here was very Olympic heavy, very like percentage based involved. And like when I sort of learned from him and like it worked really well and I was like, oh, this is like, this is, this is, this is how things should be done kind of thing. And then since I've been here, it's like, you know what doesn't it, I don't think it works that well because the way I see it is that like if you're if you're training off a percent right you're ne- you're pay- potentially putting like a weight on the back of a kid that doesn't want it there right so you're putting them in a position they don't want to be in right and then we all know as like being athletes before right like some days like that 75% like doesn't feel like it does on other days like some days you just feel like crap yeah. and it feels like super heavy yeah. right so like yeah. that 75% is more like a 90% some days, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that like trusting the intuition of my athletes has been a big change for me where like I train them off RPE. I track what they do all the time. Like if they if I put an RPE 10 on the sheet, you know, and they, and they do that, I, I write it down so I can keep track of it and I can make suggestions for them and they sort of learn how that RPE scale works for them. Mm-hmm. But I think that's sort of been the biggest change is like moving away from dictating – the weights that the athletes should be lifting and sort of trusting them. Because like I said, like the kid that doesn't want the weight on the back, I don't want to put them in that situation, but the kid mm-hmm. that's super motivated and wants to push it, they're going to do it anyway, regardless of whether you put the percentage on the sheet or not. True. Right. So that's a big thing. And that's also like, I've always felt that like velocity based training is like a thousand percent, the absolute future when it comes to athletic strength and conditioning, because it, it accounts for that. Right. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how the athlete feels, right. You just say like, the bar needs to be moving above this speed and the weight on the bar becomes completely irrelevant at that point. And then you're actually training for the exact outcome, the training effect that you want, right? Because like I was saying before, like that 75% might feel like 95% one day. So one day you were thought you were training power, all of a sudden you're forcing this kid to train max strength when they shouldn't be, mm-hmm. right? So that, that's been the biggest thing. And then like I'm in constant flux about whether I think Olympic lifting is a good idea or not. <laughs> That was going to be one of yeah. my questions about yeah. Olympic lifting. What's your kind of, yeah, bit mixed opinions I think on it? And I, like, there was a point in time where, like, when I, like, all my first strength coaches when I was an athlete always did it. Like, tons of it. Yeah. Cleans, clean pulls, like, all that stuff. And I thought it was awesome. And then, like, I started researching and they're like, oh, like, is it really necessary? And then mm-hmm. I started coaching and I'm like, this is actually really hard to coach, like, a whole bunch of people, right? Because, yeah. so like, Olympic lifting are one of those based. things where it's, like, it's so technical right but like at the end of the day like if we get a person they can get the weight from the floor to their shoulders we sort of deem that as like a good lift right Mm. but what i'm realizing is that the olympic lifts are 
an incredible tool for developing power within athletes, but only if it's done properly. Right. Right. It's one of those cases where like the end does not justify the means. The means justifies the ends when it comes to Olympic lifting. So I, I think it's an amazing tool. There's like the research shows there's a huge amount of transfer between like vertical jump and acceleration, like short acceleration, like from zero to like 10 or 20 meters. Like there's a huge correlation between power cleans and all that different stuff. Right. But again, like it only correlates if the athlete has been taught how to do it properly and they're using the right technique. And that only works if you have the means to teach them how to do it properly. And if you have the time and the manpower, right, it's really hard to do for one person to teach like potentially 30 athletes how to do a hand clean or something like that, which is a lot of the time, like smaller schools like here is the situation. So Again, like I love them. I think they're great. I see the benefit. Like I really, I would love to be able to do it, but also at the same time, I'm like, it's not worth the time. I can just put a bunch of weight on the trap bar and I can have them do the exact same movement. I can have them extend and then catch the trap bar in a power position. And it took me five minutes to teach it instead of, you know, three weeks. Yeah. Especially in that college system where you have freshmen coming in from high school and they've never touched a weight before in their life. And then you're trying to teach them how to do a hand clean and, that don't even know how to do a actual squat proper with proper yeah. form. Like, you know, just mm-hmm. like simple things like that makes it hard. <laughs> yeah. And like, even that's interesting too. Like I would love to be able to like really like separate my groups within that. Like I would love to have like my incoming freshmen on, yeah. on this program where they literally just like, they just get learn. so many repetitions <laughs> of squatting. Right. Yeah. And they just learn how to squat really, really well, because like when they're that young and they've never lifted, like just just learning how to squat they're like they're going to jump higher. They're going to run faster on, on that way alone. Like we all know, like yeah. we all first started lifting weights, like our improvements were crazy. We got so strong, like so fast. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you keep them on that super basic program, you those skills when they're freshmen. And then they once they're older, then you teach them that other stuff. Right. But it's just it's so hard to do when you're by yourself to have yeah. like two or three different programs being run. You know, it's yeah. like if I had like, you know, if there's interns and like an assistant and like all that different stuff, it'd be a different story. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, like the track and field team, like I'm going to have a lift for track and field on Monday and it's going to be me and 55 athletes. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, that's rough. And like so, the thing about track, through my track and field is like I, I, ha- I, I pretty much have to teach those kids how to how to Olympic lift because Olympic lifting is such a thing that's ingrained in the culture of track and field. Like if that kid leaves here EIU and they don't know how to Olympic lift, like I've done that kid a disservice, right? So to a certain extent, like I have no choice in that sense. Like I teach him how to hang clean. I teach him how to push press. Like I don't mess around with like snatch or anything else. But like me trying to teach like 55 kids how to do it is pretty hard. Yeah. So I sort of like session one, like all the returners, I'd be like, congratulations, you all just became strength coaches. Like you're (laughs) all helping today. Yeah. (laughs) You're the new intern. (laughs) Yeah. So going kind of back to the when you switched to more RP because you said that it is it is changing so much when one day you can feel great and one day you feel like shit. So how hard is that in, and how often do you communicate with coaches and have to change your workouts on the spot and how does that kind of work? So like coaches like oh I'm doing today we're gonna go and do this hard or I want the coach or the kids ready to play tomorrow this level. You know like how often and how hard is that? Do you have to change your workouts based upon that? Um. It, I honestly, it actually hasn't happened too often. Um, I think I've, I've earned the trust of a lot of the sport coaches that I work with here and they sort of more or less like at this point are letting me do my own thing because I, I tend to try and like account for that stuff mm-hmm. on my own. Like I realize like the demands I have, I know what their practice schedule is and things like that. And like 
with like track and field, like the head track coach, like I ask him like, Hey, like what are your, what are your intensities for the entire season or month or week yeah. or whatever it is? And he sends me an email and he tells me what his high days are, what his low days are. And I just have to match up with that, which makes life really easy. Right. Yeah. Some something like a field field sport or a court sport, like where it's a little bit more like uh, subjective. It's not like this is what we're, we're yeah. running 2000 meters today. Like it, it's, it's totally different. That makes life a lot harder. And that's sort of where, I use the jumping and like the fatigue monitoring as a way Mm -hmm. to like to modify that stuff on my own. So like, I'll do that with most of my teams. Like I'll have them come in, warm up, have them jump, see how they're doing and track the trends like over the season and see how they're doing. And if I see like, if if they're really like dipping and they're not coming back, then like, I know that I just got to pull like way back. Cause the end of the day, like if you got to cut volume from anywhere, it's got to be from the weight room, especially in season. Right. Cause like, that's the only thing that they do. That's actually not mandatory. Right. Yeah. We do that. It's hugely important. It helps a lot, but it's not mandatory in any way. The only thing that's mandatory is for them to play their sport. Right. So that's mm-hmm. where you have to cut the volume back. And that's where, like, say, yeah, like the jumping and things like that come into play. But so far in my experience, I really haven't had a lot of coaches come and say, like, hey, like, you know, I need this to happen. I think mm-hmm. they're like, pretty good about just sort of letting me do my thing and monitoring. And the guys, the guys Ed and the girls all seem to be, you know, doing pretty well with it all. Nice. So what's your, would your, how do you approach coaching different sports then? So obviously there's a lot of different, like we said, with the ones that are more conditioning-based, tra- uh, track and field and swimming, and then court-based, like what's your kind of principles and differences in those? Yeah, so like I think anytime you're sort of approaching working with a new team and like like I'd never worked with swimmers before last year. Like that was my first experience when mm-hmm. I found out I was doing the swimming. That's the first time I'm going to do it. So like you sort of look at like the nature of the sport, right? And like there's like spectrums. Like you say you go like – we swim track basketball just for example right like you're going from like a spectrum of like a swim which is like a completely like linear sport like they're they're staying in this plane the entire time like and then you have track where like for the most part they're staying in this plane but then every now and again they're turning a corner or they're like twisting in the air or something like that and then you go to mm-hmm. basketball which is completely multi-directional and chaotic right so like you're when I, so when I train a swim team, like I can pretty much just focus on that linear sort of type strength, that, that direction that they're going to be going in. And then as you go through it, like, like with track, I get a little bit more lateral movement going on because they do have to have a little bit more lateral movement. And then with basketball, like I try and cover all three planes of movement within yeah. a, in every single workout so that they're strong in all those different positions that they would get into, right? And then mm-hmm. there's like other different like considerations, like, like going back to swim, like swimmers accumulate a huge amount of volume in the pool right yeah. so i don't give them any volume in the weight room at all yeah everything i do with the swim team is strength based <laughs> yeah yeah right everything's low rep if we accumulate volume it's through lots of sets rather than like doing a set of 10 you know like yeah, yeah i would go to five or six sets of two or three rather than doing you know two sets of 10 or something like that it just doesn't make sense because they're getting so much that volume ready um obviously like protecting like the shoulders and the upper body is like huge as well so like any upper body do it work I do with swim. There's a huge emphasis on pulling more than anything, but like if they're going to press, like oh, they're not going to, I never bench press them. They're going to do floor press, right? Cause mm. it's never going to push their shoulder back and project that humerus mm. forward too far, right? It's going to keep them in a stable position or they're going to do push-ups. That's pretty much the only, only horizontal pushing I'll do with the swim team. Yeah. Um, like another sport where like tennis, like completely like multi-directional sport, right? In terms of like what they're doing with their feet, and then really rotational up top. So there's a huge amount of rotational power involved when I do the training and then lateral strength work as well. But then again, 
staying away, like trying to like prevent like any sort of undue stress to like the wrist and shoulder as well. So like with the swim team, like I would do like a, a high pull rather than actually have them ever catch like a hand clean, just for an example, right? Because you get mm-hmm. that movement but without any sort of the stress on the wrist and anything like that. And then again, yeah, like basketball too, like even the basketball guys, like I, I still consider their wrists all the time. Like when I have my basketball guys front squat, I give, I let them use the straps, mm. you know? Cause like I realized that like, yeah, like if you don't have your hand under the bar, you're probably not gonna be able to fight. And you're probably not gonna be lift, able to lift as much weight. But again, like I'm not super concerned with how much weight they're putting on the bar. I'm concerned with like the intent with which they're lifting and things mm. like that. And like, you know, is it going to affect their performance is, you know, you know, an extra 20 pounds on their front squat going to be more important than someone having to shoot a three and yeah. their wrist not hurting. Right. So that, that's yeah. kind of how I think about that stuff. Did you have anything you did when you were training to kind of along those same lines? Um, I think like with like, are you talking about like me specifically as like when I was a rookie yeah, yeah, player? Like when you were growing up and kind of, and how much you implemented and the coaches you learned from? Mm-hmm. I think like like rugby is like in very much similar to like a sport like football where like you know you have to be like you have like you have to it's armor right like so you do you do yeah. have to do that like high you do that high volume work in the gym right and like the differences between like between rugby and football is that like the bouts so like the repeated bouts that you have to do within rugby like you have to do a lot more of them right there's no stop and start nature of the game yeah. like this in football like football you have to be like hugely powerful like for like six seconds right but in like rugby like you're gonna end up going like you're gonna have to do like a bout or like you know you might have to tackle somebody and then like you're gonna like wrestling with somebody then you got to sprint and it'll probably take like you know 30 to 45 seconds and then you're sort of jogging around so like you end up sort of trying to train more in like a repeated strength or a repeated power type way and like i remember when i first came down here and like i retired like i was talking to a friend and like i think like the fewest reps i ever did when i was actually training for rugby was like four like, mm. I never did triples, yeah, doubles, yeah. or singles. It was always in this, like, six to eight, six to eight to ten rep range and, like, always, like, fluctuating. Like, I would do sets where it would be, like, six, eight, ten, six or something mm. like that and, like, just different ways of manipulating that to try and make it more applicable to, like, the game that I was playing. So more, so more yeah. like, yeah, like I said, a repeated strength and power bouts rather than just, like, a singular maximal effort. Yeah, okay. Um, and then, so, we talked a little, like we said a little bit before about your injury when you were playing rugby saying the reason you kind of decided to retire um mm-hmm. so you just want to talk a bit about what happened with your knees it was that was what your injury was right yeah so i don't remember how long ago it was now but yeah like, <laughs> way back way back when i was still playing um got tackled into a goal post by my college roommate at the time actually funnily <laughs> enough um got tackled into a goal post ruptured my acl tore the meniscus off the bone so i had to have ACL reconstruction and meniscus reattachment. They um, used a patella tendon graft for mm-hmm. my ACL reconstruction. And um, actually, oddly enough, did that entire rehab with my strength coach. I never went to a clinic. Okay, cool. I did that, I did that entire rehab with my strength coach. And I was back on the field playing within like eight months. Nice. Um, and that was sort of – that was more so like a me pushing to get back on the field in eight months so that because I had like a goal in mind of playing for Team Canada at a specific tournament. Okay. So that was me pushing because like I'm not going to say to you like I got back on the field eight months and like had no complications. Like I had a huge amount of complications because I came back so quick, right? Yeah. Um, And they just sort of prolonged that process. So I like had some issues for probably like another like I'll say like five to six months. I was still having some issues with the knee, but like I was able to stay on top of it and like train. Okay. Um, 
you know, was very successful through that time. Like that's probably my most successful time as a rugby player in terms of like what I was doing with like the national team and stuff like that. Those were most heavily I was involved. And then leading into the 2015 rugby world cup, I was on the long list. I was living out on the West coast of Canada, training at the center of excellence with the team again, sort of like doing everything that I could to like make, cause I was kind of a guy that was like on the edge, sort of like always like hanging around, but never quite all the way in. So like mm-hmm. I wasn't ever really willing to like say no to something or like not do something and sort of, eventually became like pretty severely like overtrained and was playing in a game and stepped hard off my right foot, which is the same knee that I had the initial ACL surgery on and my patella tendon just snapped. Like Mm -hmm. it was just gone. So I ruptured the patella tendon. Um, you know, was lucky enough, like I had a good relationship with the guy who did my previous surgery, called him. He was like, you know, come to the ER in the morning. We'll put you on the trauma list. Like got in. So I ended up having surgery the next day. Okay. And that rehab was like a much, much longer process like that. Yeah. Took me almost two years yeah, to wow. come back from. And like they sort of said like right off the bat, um, like, look, like this doesn't happen very often. Like we're not going to, we can't tell you how this is going to go. Like ACLs these days, like yeah. they slam dunk that thing. Like the surgery's gone down yeah. from like a six hour thing to like a one hour thing. Right. right. They just, they're in, they're out, they're in, it's done and they're out. Right. With this one, it was like. We don't really know. Like, we don't know if there's going to be enough of your patella tendon to put it back together. Are we going to have to do mm-hmm. a graft? Like, there's all these unknowns, right? Um, the surgery ended up going, like, pretty well. But like I said, the, the process took a long time. Did that rehab process more so with, like, with the clinician, but also mainly with my strength coach as well. There just needed to be more involvement with an actual physical therapist this time. Yeah. In terms of, like, management of, like, how much I could, like, bend my knee and stuff like that. Like, it was, like, I was, like, I think I was six weeks dead straight like locked dead straight after the surgery Jeez. and then after wow. that they gave me like 15 degrees and like another two weeks it was like another 15 degrees so it was like a very very long process because like you can like you can stretch something out but like if you go too far you mm. can't put it yeah. back right yeah, so like exactly. that's why it was such a slow process to do um but yeah and then by that time so I missed out on the World Cup. By that time, I was done school. I was I was trying to like make it and work as like a strength coach. I had been certified. I was working at a gym. I'd started my own business, and sort of what I was realizing was that like if I was really going to come back from this injury, I either need to like de- dedicate myself to it like one hundred percent, because like any time that like would have been like sh- I should have been like playing or practicing or or training or whatever was like the best time for me to be working. Mm. So my options were to like continue to kind of like half-ass both or commit to the one. And I sort of didn't feel like I was able to play the same way that I was. I didn't feel like I was the same athlete anymore. Yeah. And I sort of decided that if I couldn't play the way I wanted to play, I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to do it anymore. So I committed to the coaching thing and that's why I ended up moving down to the States and did my first internship at North Dakota State. Nice. So you mentioned, uh, kind of how you were overtraining a little bit. Um, what you, so you kind of get the behind the scenes tour because you know you're not the coach is going to sit him out um in practice or in games or anything and so they like being athletic training as well they'll talk to you about a lot of things they want with coaches so what how do you feel about 20 hours a week with the ncaa um do you feel like that's a lot with overtraining or the intensity needs to be modified or do you think most um our athletes are managing it decently well yeah i think i don't think the 20 hours is too much i honestly think the 20 hours is actually misplaced like yeah. To have 20 hours in seasons, like, it's, I feel like it's too much, you know, like, and then to only have eight in the off season, like, mm. I think they need to strike a better balance because, like, that off season is, like, like 
it's when you're going to that, that, that time, time where you're going to be able to like fix all those issues that yeah. happened during the season and you're going to be able to put that armor on and all that stuff. Right. So I think they need to like balance that out better. Um, but no, I think for the most part, like if you're smart about what you're doing and you're tracking your volumes and like I said, like the bigger schools, like they have like, you know, like yeah. the heart rate mm-hmm. variability stuff and all those things like that. So I think they're managing it. Cause I don't think, I think very few teams actually really even touch like their full, like 20 mm-hmm. hours, you know? Um, I do think some some coaches like will go a little bit long, and they'll do a little bit too much. But like for the most part, like unless like and like you can tell, like you can tell, like if you're looking at a team, like I go and like I watch the basketball team practice, and like if guys are like standing around, they're like rubbing their knees or like they're they're doing stuff, and I'm like okay, like you know it's probably getting to be a little bit too much now, right? Yeah. So like you can you can sort of just see how they're how they're moving and how they're looking. Like, do they have as much bounce? Like, are they are they moving as well as they were? Or are they being a little bit ginger because their ankles and their knees are hurting and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing that you kind of gotta keep an eye on. And like I said before, like the the reality is is that like that's what they have to do. They have to practice and they have to play their sport. So if they're starting to break down, that means that like I'm the one that's got to like pull back and change things of what I'm doing to make sure that they're not getting overtrained. True. You know, and like you can try and like you can sort of like educate coaches and you can try and say to them like, yeah, like, you know, like I feel like, you know, this is going a little bit longer. I think the guys might benefit from maybe just like a walk through today and then like some foam rolling and stuff like that. Um, but no, I think, yeah, I think I think some coaches can, but for the most part, I think it's OK. Yeah. Do you have a favorite type of athlete to train? Um, My favorite type of athlete to train is the athlete that's willing. Yep. Like the athlete that wants to come into the weight room and wants to work and wants to be there and like sees the value or is like, not necessarily like see like, but like if they're open to like what I'm trying to do, cause like initially an athlete might come in and be like, no, I don't want to do this. But like if they're open minded and they're like, okay, like I can see what you're saying. I can see like why you want to do this. That's my favorite athlete to train. Um, but in terms of like, like I, I personally love, like I love doing like the speed and agility stuff. Like I think mm-hmm. that that's honestly, like, I think the most important part of my job because that's what they end up actually doing out on the court or the field or whatever, right? Like, I think the weight room is a means to enhance what they do on the court. And then it's like, so it's, for me, it's like you get stronger, you enhance your ability to generate force and power, then you learn how to apply it in a controlled situation. So then it becomes automatic that you can apply it out during a game, right? So I feel like that transition time, that speed and agility work that I do with my teams is the most important part of my job. And it's actually the only, the only thing that I test. Like I'll try, I'll track the weights that my athletes lift. Like I said, like if they're doing an RPA, RPE 10 for three reps one day, I'll, I'll track that and I'll write it down what they did to see if they've gone up or down in that. But like when I actually do like a testing day with my athletes, it's like how high they can jump, how fast they can run in a straight line and how well they can change direction. Cause at the end of the day, those are the things they do in their sport. So those are the most important things uh, to me yeah. that I do with my athletes. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any? Uh, do you have a specific sports or athletes that excel? You would say in training or have a harder time than others. So like like football players, obviously, they're they've been lifting their whole pretty much most of their career. Whereas you know maybe tennis or swimming hasn't as much coming in. So like the differences between those two and how that works out. Yeah, I, I, like obviously they like I think again it comes down to like sport culture, and again like dispelling all those like urban myths about strength and conditioning, right? I think. I think you'll start to see, like, I think more athletes will, like, I think football players, they excel, right? Because it's part of the culture. They're doing it all the time. And I think the more that, like, those myths of urban legends are dispelled and, like, becomes part of the culture of other sports, I think you will see more and more athletes that do start to excel at, like, strength and conditioning. But it's sort of like any other situation, really, like, it's not, um, 
how is it like you have like your effort athletes, right? Mm-hmm. Coaches love like their effort athletes. Like their effort athletes, like the person's always gonna try harder and harder and harder and harder, right? But like while that might put up some like impressive numbers in the weight room, like effort athletes aren't necessarily getting the most out of that experience, right? Because all they're doing is trying to throw more effort at it. Mm-hmm. But it's usually like your best athlete who is not necessarily like throwing more and more effort out or throwing up the biggest numbers, but like your best athletes are always the ones that they're more cerebral and they think about it more. They're like, okay, like what is it about this that I need to do better to get better at it? So mm-hmm. they, they think about it more. They're not just throwing more and more effort at it. They're like, okay, like I need to do this different so I can be better at it. So I think those athletes that um, think about it more and that are more cerebral and like really try and hone in on what it is that, that exercise is is going to benefit them with are the ones that really do the best because then it actually translates better to the sport right which again like i said is like the ultimate goal right like mm-hmm. the effort athlete like yeah like strength coaches love the effort athlete everybody loves the effort athlete because they're just they're trying their hardest they can but like like i said they're just throwing more effort at it are they really thinking about how it's going to make them better or are they just trying harder and harder true you know so not yeah it's, i think those athletes that can think about it more are the ones that really excel in the weight room yeah. So, like, do you have, like, what's the best kind of um, advice or anything you could give to an athlete in regards to strength and conditioning? Um, if you have any, like, main points or any type of like, advice. Do it. Like, yeah. seriously, like, just, just, go, just get out there and it's do important. it. Like, form, form your own opinion. Yeah. You know? Like, there's tons of people out there that are like, oh, you know what? Like, I hurt my back in the weight room. Like, the weight room's dangerous right like no that like that's one person's experience like you shouldn't make decisions on that based on what it is like get out there and do it and like just know like for you to, like it's hard it's really hard but it's also not supposed to be easy right if it's easy it wouldn't change you it wouldn't make you better right so like yeah. form your own opinions and like buy into it and just when it gets hard like just keep working through it you know yeah. i think like i said like people get afraid of people are afraid of the hard work. And I think that's a lot of time why people make excuses for not going in, mm-hmm. but like go in with an open mind, embrace the hard work and like form your own opinion based on how much better you can get from doing yeah. that strength conditioning. Yeah. True. So yeah, do you, what do you, what would you say your future plans are then for after Eastern? Any just going to see where it takes you or. Yeah. Like I think at this point, like, I'll just go where the work goes. Like I know ultimately what my long-term goals are. Like I ultimately do want to end up back home in Canada. I think being the strength coach for the Canadian national rugby team would be like an absolute dream. Mm-hmm. I would love that. Um, you know, being, being like the head strength coach at my alma mater university of Western Ontario would also be a dream job for me. Um, but yeah, like for now in like the next 12 months to, you know, two years or whatever it is, like, just focus on here EIU doing the absolute best job that I can. Mm-hmm. And then after that, sure, yeah, go wherever the work takes me, whether that's back home to Canada, here in the United States, you know, England, wherever. Like, I've got nothing really tying me down, so I'm open up at any opportunity that comes up. Do you have anyone, um, either mentors or people you've read books on and followed a lot that you've looked up to that you've learned the most from? Uh, in terms of, like, someone that I've learned the most from, um, <clears throat> Uh, my the person I previously worked for, uh, Tony Webb, who is now an assistant strength coach with the football team at University of Southern California, like learned a huge amount from him. Like I am 
good at teaching the Olympic lifts because of everything that he taught me. I'm not like, I'm way better at teaching them than I am at doing them. It's because of that time that I spent there with him. I uh, learned a lot about like running a room and all those different things. Um, obviously we're working with uh, coach Niehaus now at EIU. Like he's been hugely influential on like the way I think and the way I train and like, just like me and him, just like hanging out, like talking and lifting together and just doing different things. I've learned so much from him because he has so much experience, so mm-hmm. many years in the field stuff like that um you know like i said like uh joe ken like his his tier system Mm -hmm. i'm hugely influenced by so i'd love to meet him someday just pick his brain and talk um cal deets is another one like obviously triphasic training manual is like one of the best known strength and conditioning books there is so again i'd I'd love to sit down and talk with him things like that and Mm -hmm. um yeah those, those are probably the ones that jump out the most nice so where would people be able to follow you um, you have an Instagram account, any other accounts and, um, shout out your yeah. names and I, that. I actually only have an Instagram account. I don't have anything else. I don't have a Twitter or Facebook anymore, but yeah, my Instagram handle is spear S P E A R underscore strength. Um, and the, that's my coaching one. It'll mostly just be like me and the things that I'm doing and messing around with and thinking about while I'm training and the occasional, the occasional clip of my athletes, but I'll be perfectly honest. I'm pretty terrible at the social media thing. <laughs> I, uh, I don't like, I don't like having my phone on me, especially yeah. when I'm coaching. So it won't be too much of the athletes, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to do better with it and put more yeah. stuff out there. So Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks very much for being on. We appreciate all the knowledge and everything. So yeah, thanks again for taking the time out for this. Yeah, no problem. It's a, it's a, it's a cool experience. Never done this before. So I really appreciate <laughs> you guys asking me to be yeah, on we'll, it. Yeah. We'll have you back on one day. <laughs> Yeah, definitely.